0: We're going to be in Song of Songs, Chapter 6. If you want to turn there, we're going to finish it out today. If you want to hear something more generally, some help more generally, instead of just in the confinements of marriage like this book often touches on, and that's this, whatever circumstance you're in, whatever conflict you are in, or I am in whether it be new marriage or renovating marriage, if you will, maybe a new administration, maybe a new year, maybe close ones dying, maybe close ones being diagnosed with cancer (laughs) or some other illness. We need to learn by the grace of God to accept change as God would have us not fight it. Now, Caveat, don't read too much into that statement because I believe some changes are meant for us to battle. <laughs> Old Testament Israel, thankfully, didn't always accept new enemies who enslaved them, but called out for a deliverer and had salvation. I get that. But some changes do have certainties and points of no return about them, right? Right? What we're going to be dealing with in this story and what we have been dealing with is that the bride in our story has been longing for her old home, her old life. She doesn't know about this life as queen. She just married King Solomon. She doesn't know about life in the palace. Now, this has been a plot line throughout the book. And last week, we had this interaction between the bride... And the chorus, which is basically a third-party narrator of the book, the bride and Solomon just had this lover's tiff, stuff you never thought that would be in the Bible. (laughs) He advanced her. She rejected. She then changed her mind and made advances on him, and he rejected. And then the bride enlisted the help of the chorus to go and seek Solomon out, but before they helped her, they asked her, well, what do you like about him? What do you like about Solomon? You've been stressing over this becoming the queen business. You've been wanting to go back home. Now, in typical song of Solomon's fashion, the bride then sang a song about the man head to toe. What else can you do? And made a commitment statement to him again, followed by a statement of what he does, his job. As if she's saying, I'm his, he's mine, and I'm all in, even if he's going to be busy all the time. Well, then it was Solomon Stern again, so he's saying about how captivating she was. And he used some military imagery saying that she's as powerful, as awe-inspiring, or even as terrible and frightful as an army marching with banners. In other words, he cannot help but love her. He cannot help but be mad at her because he's all in. Now, here in a second, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read three verses that even though they sound like English... (laughs) You're going to be lost if you haven't vigorously been studying your study guide or commentary, but don't worry, I'm going to preach on it too. So I'm going to uh, I'm reading and preaching from the CSB, but I'm going to read the last line out of the NIV just because I prefer their translation over the CSB. So I invite you to stand one last time together. We're going to be reading Song of Songs, chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 11 through 13. The bride is speaking, and she says, I came down to the walnut grove to see the blossoms of the valley, to see if the vines were budding and the pomegranates were blooming. I didn't know what was happening to me. I felt like I was in a chariot with the noblemen. The chorus says, Come back, come back, Shulamite, her name. Come back, come back, that we may look at you. Solomon then says, Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? And you're like, I know exactly what they're talking about. Let's pray. Father, as we finish out this book that's been no doubt hard for many to understand, uh, vigorously debated and interpreted, um, we trust that your spirit wrote these words, though, and we trust that your spirit can be present today, taking them and unpacking them for us, bringing clarity to what they mean. Father, if any of us come here with hard hearts or if we have distant minds, um, for some for some reason anxious or defensive, we pray that your spirit would help us to relax and to hear you and hear your voice, and that we would respond obediently to anything and everything you would say to us. Father, uh, get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you can imagine, um, Christy and I have been having a lot of talks. Hard talks. One thing that we managed to voice, though it needs no voicing, is that we didn't plan for this. <laughs> we didn't expect this, want this, nor dream for this. You all get that. Like I said, it doesn't need voiced. But a young couples should be dealing with kids and bills and schedules. But... Some things come whether we want it or not. A lot of you have had things come that was unwanted. Big things. Relationship issues that have gotten so out of hand that you can give it their own zip code. Similar to us, maybe illness that just seems a bit more serious than the cold or even a bad case of the flu. A bad car accident. Or an injury that you at first thought might be just a couple of weeks healing, but maybe it's turned out to be an annoyance that you had to live with. A thorn in the side, as Paul would word it. And it would be easy to be cynical and to say that the point of this sermon is just this. Well, you got to live with it. What can I say? I brought up Paul. He's got a thorn in the side. Life throws us curveballs. We're stuck with the pain. That's it. I've always been a bit more optimistic about God's grace. I've always been a bit more hopeful that life is better than just settling. The bride in our, in our story has a lot on her mind. Two big things that may be on her mind as we think about what we've gone through already in the book of Song of Songs. Perhaps guilt and tension over the lover's tiff that she and Solomon had, and then secondarily, home. She's been thinking about that for a lot of the books. She wants to be home. One of my commentaries thought that this, the symbolism of the first verse we read was actually, again, sexual in nature. But I side with another commentary I have, and I take it to be more literal. Again, the bride says, I came down to the walnut grove to see the blossoms of the valley, to see if the vines were budding and the pomegranates blooming. And I believe the bride is actually going to a real garden, as it were. And in fact, in Arabic, the Kidron Valley, northeast of Jerusalem, is referred to literally as Walnut Tree Valley. And here's what I think she's doing. She's getting out of the palace and going to a garden. Because that's more like home, right? Christy and I, when we lived in Moscow, we lived within walking distance of the University Arboretum. We liked to take walks there because it wasn't traffic lights, it wasn't crowds of college kids or the mall. In other words, it wasn't city life. (laughs) At least it was trees and plants and some walking with a very small measure of nature of outside of what wasn't city life like. That came out (laughs) jumbled. (laughs) I'm thinking that this gal in our story once some countryside. And it's then and there the most debated and hard to understand verse of the book happens, or so all the commentaries tell me that this is the most complicated verse. She says, I don't know what was happening to me. I felt like I was in a chariot with a nobleman. Like, I get it. That happens to me all the time, right? No. My interpretation of this verse is contingent of my interpretation of the last verse. And that is, she's in a real garden because she's thinking about home. And then, hear the verse after this. Listen to what the chorus says. The chorus says to her, Come back, come back, Shulamite." Now, this is just a female form of the name Solomon. It's kind of a reminder that the two are one. Come back, come back, that we may look at you. The chorus seems to think that she's drifting somewhere. Now, here's what I and others think. While she's perusing the trees and flowers in the garden in the Kidron Valley, away from the palace, she's missing home that much more. And she's so wrapped up and wanting to be home that perhaps, hear that, perhaps, this isn't like everybody agrees here, perhaps as she hears a nobleman's chariot drive by, maybe on the way out of Jerusalem, she's craving to go home so much that she just wishes She was in that chariot with him on her way out of Jerusalem, on her way out of palace life. Hence, the chorus is beckoning her back. Don't go. In other words, they've made so much progress. You laid out for us recently why you like your husband above all the other men. Let's build on that. And then the chorus has oftentimes been a source of literary transition for the story. So the bride's down at this garden, thinking about home so much, she's just tempted to run into the nearest chariot and say, take me away. That's how she sounds, you know it. But (laughs) the chorus is beckoning her back, quote, that we may look at you. (laughs) Okay. Look at you, what do they mean? We really don't know what they mean until Solomon steps in the picture to talk. And she says, the second part of Psalm 613, this is where I brought in the NIV. Solomon says, um, oopsie, how you, or excuse me, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahaneam? Mahaneam, The CSB would word it this way, how you gaze at the Shulamite as you look at the dance of two camps? Mahanaim, dance of two camps. We'll talk about that. Um, I think the framing of this as a question. Now, original Hebrew didn't have... Um, Periods and all that. What's, what's that called? Mechanics, I guess? Punctuation. Punctuation. I wrote down pronunciation. And I was like, I know that's not it. <laughs> Punctuation. It's always been up to the translators to throw all that in there. And the usage of the Hebrew word, which is actually a city, Mehanayim, is what's best here. It means two camps, two armies. Um, Mehanaim is a city in Israel... West of the Jordan River, I believe, in the vicinity of another town you've probably never heard of too much, Jabesh Gilead. Mehanaim is mentioned elsewhere in your scriptures. That's in your outlines and study guides. Now I want to talk about a separate fact, but we're going to put two, these, these two facts together. Another fact that may sound unrelated is this, that when Hebrews were victorious at battles and wars, Hebrew women would often have victory dances. There's references to that in your scripture as well. Perhaps the most easily remembered one is after the Israelites make it to the other side of the Red Sea, the Egyptians were swallowed up, Miriam led the Hebrews in a worship service, a victory dance. Now, time to bring these two here together in a nice, big, beautiful theory of interpretation, because that's how we do Song of Songs, is we just theorize and interpret. It could be possible that Solomon is referring to an undocumented, perhaps recent battle victory at Mahanaim. For whatever reason, there could have been a battle there, and as often is the case, once victorious, there was a big victory dance. And so what Solomon is saying here to the chorus, who just beckoned back the bride, again, he says, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? In the context, especially the following verses, inform us that this question is rhetorical, meant to convey to them, she's dancing, but it's not a victory dance like what we just had for Ma'anaim. Don't gaze at her. This is for my eyes only. That's kind of what he's saying. Because indeed, Solomon goes into yet another long poem, praising every feature of her body. But it's different this time. Now it's from toe to head. Plot twist. Oh boy. No. And I'll let you look in your study guide and commentaries, particularly around chapter 7, verse 1, to see more evidence that the bride is indeed dancing romantically or erotically for her husband. In the confines of marriage, in the privacy of marriage, fun like this sexually, I think it's biblically okay so long as nobody's being forced to do what they don't want to do. We won't be looking at every verse and every compliment, Again, for the sake of content, you can look at those study guides and commentaries. a few left by the front door. But I do want to pull out a few verses because it serves to actually move the plot along. It's some of those more weird compliments that you don't see every day on Valentine's Day cards. And uh, again, I think they're more for the reader's benefit, less for the character's benefit. Look with me in verse 4 and 5. First verse 4, Solomon says to his bride, Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools of Heshbon, that is a city renowned for its pools, by Beth Rabem's gate. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. <laughs> Thanks, baby. Um, two uses of the word tower here. The first usage likely referring to jewelry about her neck. But then how romantic is this about her nose? Like, that's a one-liner that's going to melt any girl's heart, I know. But this is another one of those character quality lines, more than a physical simile. He's not aiming for, hmm, how to describe her nose. (laughs) More than he's pulling out a physical feature to just use as a launch pad to describe her character. Damascus was in another nation, and from Israel's standpoint, if you're a tower looking towards Damascus, you're watching for invaders. And it could be a word picture to denote security or strength. Tower, he's bolstering her confidence that she is a strong and secure gal. We're going to hear more about a certain part of her strength and security in verse 8. But then in verse 5, we hear from Solomon to his bride, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, the hair of your head like purple cloth. A king could be held captive in your tresses. When you are driving into Portland, such as when you're going to yearly meeting, long before you get to Portland in the distance, you see something on the skyline towering above the rest of the mountains. You see Mount Hood. Mount Carmel crowns the plains of Palestine. That was like the best picture I could find. It actually, if you like compare it with the rest of the landscape, but like Mount Hood's a whole lot better to look at. Anyways, <laughs> but also what's, more important in this description of her head was some imagery. We we heard about crowning and purple cloth and king. These are all images of royalty. As we see, coupled with the previous verse and the progression of the plot line, he's giving her confidence and he's saying, you are a strong and secure woman. You are queen material. You have what it takes to be royalty. I've chosen the right bride. And also... We uh, could actually see more of this imagery prevalent last week when we studied. He he said then, uh, or excuse me, he says here, a king could be held captive in your tresses. And then last week, as we were studying in chapter 6, he says, you were awe-inspiring as an army with banners, saying that she's like an invading army taking over his heart. It's just helpless and hopeless. He's always going to be hers. She's conquered his heart. The same is here in chapter 7. He's held captive by her. He doesn't want to go anywhere, which has to be reassuring to her. She's been worrying that she'd spend many a lonely night without him, but it's not for lack of his wanting her. That's the point. And in fact, that's the point of verse 10. When the bride is finally speaking again, she delivers a third commitment statement of the book. Now, she said in chapter 2, verse 16... My love is mine, and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. Now, and I explained it, these two statements together, the commitment was in light of his duties as a king. You have to think about Solomon's right in pre-Shakespeare, Shakespeare. He feeds his sheep among the lilies. Solomon is a shepherd of Israel. Nevertheless, she knows that her love is hers. The second time she gave this statement was in three. And this was after the argument, the, the tiff, where he advanced. She declined, changed her mind, advanced him. He declined and ran away. She went looking for him. The Chorus asked her, what do you like about him? She says, I think I feel a song coming on. She sang a song. And then she says, I am my loves, and my love is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Now she switched it. I don't know if you have caught that. She put herself first the second time. And this was as a means of saying that I am deciding that I am my loves. I'm making the commitment myself. It's not contingent on what he works on, who he is. It's just my own decision to say at the end of the day, no matter what, I am my loves. Well, this third commitment statement here in chapter 7 flips it up even more. She says, I am my loves and his desire is for me. I am my loves. That's the starting point again. Not because of anything he's doing or has done or will do, but she's chosen from her own resources. I am my loves. And the story, nobody's telling her different. Nobody's going to change that. I am my loves. But it could be that she's either coming to understand this, or it could be that he's come to actually have this. She says, and his desire... Is for me. I'm going to lean towards the, towards the idea that this is just a personal revelation, that she finally understands what's been there all along. His desire is for her. And I think that way because Solomon's been singing erotic love songs that has expressed his desire all throughout the book. She's just finally, oh, red flag. Oh, I finally realized something. And here's the point of what it means for the bride. Sure, he's the king. He might be gone at inopportune times, but his desire is for her. His desire is for her. He said last week in one of his love songs, another thing you could just send to your bride this coming Valentine's Day, you're as beautiful as Terza and lovely as Jerusalem. Those are the two most important cities in Israel, Jerusalem being the capital and I I saw it as a way of saying, I'd rather be with you. You're much more desirable than all my king work. I want you first. Men, do your wife does your wife know that even though you and I are object people, we're thing people, I, I heard that ladies are relationship people and men are things people. Ladies like and operate primarily out of connecting and relationships, and men are like, Yeah, I connect with my car out in the shop with my computer and with my projects. And the point is this, does your wife know that you desire her? See, it's not a a sin to have hobbies and enjoy things, but at the end of the day, does she know and do you truly desire her above other things? With recovery coming up for Christy after surgery tomorrow, Christy said to me that one of the things she's worried about is how much I'll be at home as she recovers. It doesn't sound like it sounds like. Not because she doesn't want to be around me, but she says she knows that sermon prep and study guide work and all of that is life-giving to me. Christie's also life-giving to me. I like her. I desire her. I enjoy my time with her. But I also want to take this out further and connect it again to the interpretation of this book, that the man in the story could be God. A lot of People believe this in history, and the bride is his people. You need to know, this Christian, that more than loving you, God desires you. See, I've been a Christian all my life, and I really want this knowledge to take root in my own heart, because it doesn't always. More than loving me, God desires me. It's one thing to recite what we know. He sent his son to die for me. The wrath of God was channeled. It fell on Jesus. We barely escaped the wrath of God. An angry God who wants to wipe us out? No. (laughs) That's not how to picture it. See, God knew from the foundation of the world that Jesus was coming, and He planned it this way because He never wanted to wipe anyone out to begin with. Because He desires us. He loves us. Maybe I'm the odd one out, but is there anybody else like me that tends towards distance and confuses Reverence in God's holiness with a tinge of coldness and slight alienation. God loves you and he desires you. He desires time with you. He he desires what it means to be father and son, father and daughter. He's the king of the world, but he's never too busy for you to cast your burden on him. And he's never too busy for you to spend time with him because he desires you. Well, after the bride gives this statement, I am my loves and his desires for me, she makes an invitation. It's actually an invitation that Solomon gave to her on their wedding night, chapter four, verse eight, to be exact. And she says to him, come, my love, let's go to the field. The NIV, their NASB would both say countryside here. It lets us in on the fact that she's inviting him more to a region, not just a field outside their palace anywhere, but actually her homeland, Lebanon. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyard to see if the vine is budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. In other words, let's see if it's springtime there. <laughs> springtime, again, a common imagery of love and romance. And in fact, the rest of verse 12 through chapter 8, verse 4, suggests that she's inviting him to the countryside for more than just mosing around and looking at flowers. She wants to get romantic and intimate with him outside in the countryside. I'll just leave that there. Two more things real quickly before I make a final point in this middle section. You heard the word final. You're like potluck. Oh. (laughs) She has this weird desire. I should say weird to us desire. Chapter 8, verse 1. She says, If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breasts, I would find you in public and kiss you, and no one would scorn me romantic baby (laughs) it kind of answers itself i brought this up earlier in the series that solomon likes to call her my sister and the idea is this that in that culture even if you were married any sort of public displays of affection were forbidden however among family members pecks on the cheek or an obvious affection in public were a bit more socially acceptable and so the idea is is the bride was wishing that she could show off her affection in public you know, in other words, she's really saying in some ways, I'm wishing it was the 21st century and we could hold hands and do some side hugging and cheek pecking and no one would really bat an eye. That's what she's getting at. And then in verse 4 uh, is yet another final of three bookmarks throughout the book. I said that she had three commitment statements. I am my loves and he is mine. But also she has said this three times. She says in eight, four. Young woman of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And each time she says this, there's usually context involved. First, the recurring address to the chorus is probably the plainest teaching type directive to the reader from the book. And I believe it's in the vein of Hebrews 13, verse 4. Keep the wedding bed pure. Don't engage in sex before marriage, outside of marriage, or obviously with somebody else besides your spouse. (laughs) But there is also context to it that something in the story there is to consider in light of this directive. And the directive here has, has been be with someone that you love first from your own resources, not based on their performance, but at the same time, someone whom you know is desirous for you. And... The beauty of the gospel is this, if you married and you realize and confess, I'm not there, it's not happening for us, by God's grace, get there. (laughs) And again, she loves him because of her own decision. So by that very nature, if you start to say, I'm not there because they, it's not about they right now. It's about you and what you can or cannot do and the commitment that you can make from your own resources. This whole passage, too, maybe you've noticed it's upped the ante. See, earlier in the book, we've had scenes, if you will, that take place in the bedroom. But just if we're honest and if we're frank, this was kind of an erotic love dance. And then an invitation from her to go out to the countryside and do things. And with these scenes, also there have been plot resolutions. One more resolution to come. We'll tackle in a few minutes. But the overall point, I think, is have fun with change. Have fun with change. Their love has been advancing to a new level. They've been overcoming some issues. They're kind of having fun while doing it. Change, the kind of change that really can't be fought, really no point of return, the kind of change that needs accepting, it really brings two paths with it. First, what many of us try to do can be to fight from a defeated standpoint, and that is to deny that change is happening, get angry at the change that's happening, ignore it or change our own lives to such a point to really the change is actually victorious because we put ourselves into stagnation and paralysis and we surrender and we're defeated. Or the other path, the path this couple took, is to see change as an opportunity Maybe even to have fun. She was sad. There was rejection. She wanted to go home. But then she just kind of went with the flow. She threw a little bit of caution to the wind. You rejected me last time. Let's see if you can reject this. And they were both having fun. She invited him to some more fun, to a place that she wanted to go. We'll get there in a minute. What opportunities does your change give you? Here's the only illustration that I could come up with, and it's very boring because I'm a theology and a history buff. So this is the boring illustration you get, but I also got to counterbalance the exciting love scenes in the book with boring illustrations. So Martin Luther, the reformer, was literally hunted down to be killed. Famous story of him, after leaving a church council, he was kidnapped. Turns out to actually be by, be by some friends, and he was taken to a castle for upwards of a year or so he was living in exile and while the heat died down with those seeking him out he grew a beard he wore disguise if he was somehow seen in public also took the time to translate the latin bible into german and make his translation of the bible unwanted change people are hunting me down i got to go hide for a year opportunity i guess i'll just write the bible for my people Okay, just because I want to spare you one more week in the book, we are going to finish it. We have one more section. And the section that we have, chapter 8, verses 5 through 14, the big idea is change cannot beat love. Change cannot beat love. So the brides invited Solomon to the countryside, and our wonderful chorus, who pushes the narrative along, brings the transition. They say, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the one she loves? We're in the last chapter of the book. I'll give you two guesses. The bride and Solomon, good job. They're coming up from the wilderness. Solomon accepted her invitation. They went out to the countryside. Again, I invite you to be in your study guides, commentaries, fill in some of the blanks. But we're going to move to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8 where the bride says, Set me as a seal on your heart, a seal on your arm. As a king, Solomon would be sealing documents. Official, decided, the king has spoken. Dean's favorite character from the Ten Commandments would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. Sealing it. She says, set me as a seal, Solomon, on your heart. I want to own that. And a seal on your arm, a symbol of physicality. Not only does she want to be his affectionately, but also physically and exclusively. And some of you might say, how sad. This is Solomon. We all know what happens to Solomon. I got an answer for you this week. I just came up with it. What if the bride eventually died? And what if that was a big cause for Solomon to make all the bad decisions he ended up making? There's no evidence for this whatsoever, but it makes me feel better personally. Anyways, for love, the bride says, is as strong as death. In other words, it's final. It's irreversible. For those who choose out of their own resources to love their spouse, the kind of love that God can give us to have for them can be is also the same as his love for us, unconditional, final, as strong as death. Jealousy, the law says God's jealous over his people, is as unrelenting as Sheol. Now, we're not talking about junior high, hey, you winked at that guy type of jealousy. We're talking about intense, exclusive love. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame, verse 7 A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. In other words, change can't be love. The torrents, the rivers, the problems that this couple has faced, it cannot be the kind of love they have, cannot beat it. Some of you, if you're experiencing unwanted change, this is the love that God has for you. And if you're a couple, by the grace of God, it can be kind of the love that you have for each other, and that kind of love is Not or will not be beaten by any change. Love conquers all. The bride continues. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it, the ESV says he, and I like that better. I think it's more rightly stated. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, he would be utterly scorned. Why? Because the kind of love they're talking about can't be bought. Now. Again, last chapter we, we've seen the couple exchange love songs, we've seen them overcome problems, we've kind of seen those commitment statements and whatnot. We've talked about them, but we might still wonder how do they get this kind of love? This great priceless love that overcomes torrents and rivers, is there any more practical advice you could give us writer who you who have written such easy to understand and not Shakespearean at all type of writing? Can you give us any wisdom? So now you need your grown-up ears on because we're going to talk about breasts, but not really. For the first and only time in the story, the bride's brothers speak up. And they say, our sister is young. She has no breasts. And you say, well, what's she doing married? What has Solomon been singing about? You catch on really quick. Thank you. We're likely in a flashback. And the brothers are saying, she's young. We have time to talk about the following, and that is, what will we do for our sister the day she is spoken for? In other words, how can we plan for her marriage? What will her marriage day look like? More importantly, what kind of woman will we be giving away as her brothers? Verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build a silver barricade on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with cedar planks. Follow me. Wall, door. Two images. If she is a wall, you can't walk through walls. Walls are impenetrable, and that's the point. The picture here that began with breasts, it's an image of sexuality, and the boys are saying, if she's not given to boys' advances, if she's not loose morally, we will build a silver barricade for her. Silver is more decorative than signs of opulence, and I believe this means they're going to praise her for her character, her virtue. They're going to spur that on. They'll say things like, I'm so glad you turned down that jerk who was trying to court you. We know him. He's not nice to women. He's not in for their best interest. You're a great gal, sis. You're doing the right thing. If she is a door, doors can be opened. They can be walked through. There's access through them. The brothers will then enclose her with cedar planks. You don't put up cedar planks to look at them. You put them up for defensive measures. Our sister's a wild one. Here come some more jerks. We've got to play defense again because if that jerk gets to our sister... There's no telling what she'll do. That's the idea. And you're like, see, I got that easily, Kevin. (laughs) I didn't either. (laughs) This is the plan of the brothers. If you are a brother to some sister, take a hint. Spur your sister on to virtue. Encourage her in purity. No matter who you are, if you're unmarried, take a hint. Purity, virtue. Well, what did the bride do in her adolescence? She says in verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. She took the first route. She was a wall. She wasn't taken to boys' advances. The image of towers is another one of character quality, not physical simile. She was defensive. She wasn't winking at men, trying to get their attention. She was saving herself. And in doing so, she says, so to him, Solomon, I have become like one who finds peace. Solomon very closely sounds like the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So she's doing a little play on his name and she's saying, because of the quality I chose in my upbringing and the choices I've made to save myself, I didn't come to him with baggage, right? In other words, Solomon's like not saying, we're not uh, going to that place where you and your other guys were on the date nights, right? Solomon's not having to say, did you bring all your other old boyfriends here? That's the kind of love that can be changed, that can be facilitated from an early point in life. One last thing, and I truly mean it this time. (laughs) Look at your commentaries if you want to see all the other verses, but the last two verses in the book, Solomon and the bride are likely to go back home to the palace from their trip in the countryside, and he says to his bride, You who dwell in the gardens, companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. Do you hear how he referred to her? You who dwell in the gardens. And this is the identity that she's been missing her upbringing, her country life. And so it's kind of a test. We are where you have been wanting to be. And then she says, there are companions listening for her voice. In other words, we're at your old home. All your friends are here. You're finally where you've been wanting to be. What have you to say? But she's overcome the problems with love, and their love has accepted the change that has come on their lives. And so plot twist, she's not going to talk to the companions. She's put the past to rest and she says back for Solomon's ears only, run away with me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She's used that phrase before, just romantic imagery to say let's hurry. This is the bride saying, I'm yours, I've accepted the change, I'm the queen, I'm your wife, I'm okay with leaving this country behind, our love has accepted the change and we've done this change together. So here's the thing, whether it's life generally or the dynamics of a love relationship, love accepts change. The changes that we aren't supposed to battle, but the changes that are inevitable. God's love for us is strong enough. His grace is sufficient enough to not only be defeated under change, but actually to look for opportunities because of the change. If you're a couple and you've been going through changes, your love doesn't need to be stagnant, paralyzed, and defeated under changes. But your love, by God's grace and resolve, can accept the change and work through the change because love beats change. Let's pray. Father, um, I think I just made it through probably the most debated and hardest book of the Bible And there are so many interpretations that I'm sure I could preach through it again and it might sound completely different. However, just as this couple has faced problems and changes, Father, so we in our own lives face problems and changes, things we don't want to accept. But we do find hope that the love you have for us is stationary and consistent, that you are a solid rock, that though seasons change, lifestyles change, everything changes, but you never change. And that sort of love that you have for us and we can have for you, and that sort of love that we can have for our spouse can accept and absorb change, and we would still make it out on the other end. Father, I pray for anybody who feels like their life is not the same from one day to the next and are looking for something consistent. Father, perhaps we've already accepted you as Lord and Savior, but our life has not been the way it should be. Or if we haven't accepted you as Lord and Savior, I pray that this would be a day of salvation. Father, that we would say yes to your son Jesus, that we believe that our sins make us deserve hell and the wrath of God, but in Jesus we find forgiveness. And in Jesus and his spirit, who we invite to live in our lives, we can live a new life, a better life, a life that's consistent and contingent on you from day to day, who never changes. Father, as we think about our potluck together downstairs, we ask that you would bless the food, bless the hands that have prepared it, bless our conversation with one another. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and eat potluck. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.